Do me a favor, if you're on the end of a row, slide in a little bit. We've got some other folks that are trying to find seats, and we want them to have great seats, so slide in the middle and get friendly with uh, somebody near you. Great problem to have. We like that. Now, God did not put you on this earth to live a selfish life. God put you here, this place, this time, so that you could make the world a better place. When Christ followers get to heaven, one of the things that the Bible's very clear about is we're going to serve God. And so what God wants us to do is to spend these lives that He's given us practicing here on earth serving. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is there's only one way to serve God while you're on this planet. Just one. In order to serve God, you've got to serve other people. And that's what we're going to spend some time talking about today. Whenever you use your talents, your time, your energy in serving others, helping others, that is called ministry. And we're going to talk about ministry today. When we serve, when we minister to others, when we give our lives to others, there are some things that really make God happy. And we're going to talk about that real quickly. When you serve, there is a right way to serve. So the first thing on your listening guide, something that makes God smile is unity. When the people of God have a laser-like focus on the priorities of God, it makes God happy. Second thing that makes God smile is diversity. Okay, isn't that doublespeak? You just said unity makes God happy. Diversity, aren't you contradicting yourself? No. Because when, when we're unified in purpose, that makes us a team. When we have a common goal in mind, that makes us a team. But there are different players on the team. God creates all of us differently. God creates diversity, and He wants the church to reflect that diversity. Can you imagine if the Dallas Cowboys had 53 Tony Romos? Now, don't say anything. There's people here that love Tony. There's people here that don't. But I just mean if they had 53 quarterbacks on their roster, how good would that team be? Right? The, the, the American League West champion Rangers. If they had 24 pitchers on their roster, no catchers, no one in the field, how good would they be? I was watching Sports Center and they talked about, you know, what if you had a team full of goalkeepers? How good would a soccer team be? Right? So at New Life, we have all kinds of different gifts and abilities. And God wants us to have the same goal in mind to work together and to use all of these differing abilities. Because when we do, God gets the glory for that, not any one individual. People look at a church that's functioning properly and they don't say, oh, well, that pastor's got it together or this group's got it. They say, God must be real and I want to be a part of it. Jesus said, if we lift him up, if we glorify him, then he'll do all the drawing of people. We've just got to be sure that we're doing it the right way. Now, what if in our band, we had a couple of people missing today, but what if we had 200 guitar players in this church and no drummers? Y'all wouldn't be sad, would you? Y'all didn't react at all. What if we had 200 preachers? You would never get out of church, ever. But no one would listen. They'd all be fighting over who gets to talk. So what we've got to do is we've got to figure out what our purpose is. We have all kinds of people back in the back working with children. But what if we had 200 people that love snuggling babies and nobody who could stand toddlers up through fifth graders? Our children's ministry would suck. 
Because they'd all be in here. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine if we had all the children from the back in here right now? One day we're going to do it just to jack with you. We're going to bring them in here and just let them run wild for about five minutes so that you'll remember to always say thank you to the people who are in the back. In heaven, there'll be people from every race, tribe, nation, and language. That's what it says in Revelation. Gathered before the throne of God. If you do not like diversity here on this planet, what in the world makes you think you're going to like diversity in heaven? That doesn't make any sense. What unifies us is we have the same dad. If you're a Christ follower, we have a heavenly father. And that's what unifies us. And he's already given us all his priorities. You don't get to make up the purposes for the church. You don't get to make up the priorities for the church. They're contained here. But we're so illiterate about what's in the scripture that we don't know what God tells us to do. And so we don't see many churches functioning properly. We want to be one of those that functions according to God's priorities. Because when a ragtag bunch of believers gets together, they're diversified, they're unified, they change history. I've always wanted to be a part of a church that changes history. And I think some of you do too. I think that's why you're here. You don't want to do church the way you've always done it. You want to do church the way Christ commands because you know there's power there. Now, there's another thing. Unity, diversity. And then the other thing that makes God smile when we're doing church together is commitment. Radical, total commitment. Nothing ever gets done without it, without commitment. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57, it says, As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. That's the romantic view of being a Christ follower. Because a lot of people say, Oh, I'll do youth camp. God, I'll do whatever you call me to do. Get back home. Not right now, God. I don't have time. People will say, oh God, they'll come to a crisis point in their life. Oh God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. If you just get me through this, get me through this. And they forget. Look what Jesus said. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests. But the son of man has no place to even lay his head. Okay, you walk up to Jesus and you declare your devotion to him. And he goes, you know those foxes that run around? They got a place to stay. You know those birds you see flying? They have a home. And then he says... I don't even have a pillow to lay my head on. Now, that seems to be a curious response to me. Someone declares their devotion to Jesus and he's going, you need to think about that. Because he's telling us that that commitment is a serious deal. He knows that when commitment becomes inconvenient, you look at the scripture, you look at the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. When when commitment became inconvenient, the majority of people quit following Jesus Christ. And Jesus looked at his serious followers and said, what about you? And they said, where would we go, Lord? You have, the, you have the keys to the kingdom. And so when commitment becomes inconvenient, many Christ followers turn their back. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, it's all or nothing. And I do not understand partial commitment. I don't understand that. When Janie and I stood up um, 20 years ago and committed our lives to each other, we didn't say... I'll give you 200 days out of the year. Those other 165, I'm using how I want to. If she had looked at me and said that, I'd say, you're, you're, you're smoking something because I'm not going there. If I had said to her, I'll give you 365 days, but, or 360 days, five days, I'm going to spend how I want to, my wife would have said, sorry, dude, 
it is all or nothing. Our Heavenly Father asks for nothing less. I think we're confused about this deal of commitment. When you say yes to Jesus Christ, you exchange your life for His. That means you give yours away, and then all the benefits that He has, He gives you because you've exchanged your life. And so when you give your life to Christ, there are two words that can no longer exist in your vocabulary, and that's no, God. God calls you to do something, you do not get to say, no, Lord, or He's no longer Lord. Does that make sense to you? I'm not sure it does. Because we make commitments very flippantly. Janie and I were driving to a wedding this weekend. We were talking about this. People in this day and age do not understand commitment. The Bible says, let your yes be yes. And your no, no. Anything beyond that, don't do it. But if you say yes, do it. If you say no, then you stick with that. I think we're saying yes to way too many things. We no longer have a choice when we say yes to Jesus to only serve when it's convenient. Radically mature followers of Christ... Make sacrifices that many other people don't notice or don't appreciate. And it happens all the time. And do you know who that makes you like when you do that? When you, when you make sacrifices for people who don't even care, who don't even pay attention, you know who that makes you like? Jesus. Because I want you to think back to when he was hanging on the cross. How many people appreciated what he was doing while he was hanging on the cross? Oh, Jesus, my God, my... No, 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 no. They did not understand his radical sacrifice. Even his closest followers missed it until he began appearing to them afterwards. And there were a lot of appearances. Over a period of 40 days, he appeared to over 500 people. There were all kinds of living witnesses when the scriptures were written. If they could have produced a, live, a, a dead Jesus, if his enemies could have, Christianity would have died very quickly. But they couldn't. And there were all kinds of witnesses who said, I saw him. I saw him alive. I saw him alive. Nobody appreciated it at the time. It was only afterwards that a few of them got it. And, they, and, and it's what changed these 12 followers, cause, or 11 at the time. They ran on the night that he was arrested. They ran in fear. They cowered. They were hiding when Jesus appeared to them days later. They were hiding in fear. And then all of a sudden, after the day of Pentecost, 40 days later, 49 days later, after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were radically changed and their commitment changed and they were willing to die for him. That's the type of commitment that changes history. And that's what we're talking about. God calls us to be history-changing team. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a team. How many of you have been a part of a team that was really a cool team? Not not a team that was bad, but a, a team that you really enjoyed. Next summer will be my 30-year high school reunion. I went to my 10-year. I didn't. We were in the process of deciding what we were doing. Uh, we were in between churches. It was two weeks before we started this church when my 20-year happened. I didn't get to go to my 20-year, and I was so bummed out about that. So I've been waiting. I can't wait to go to my 30-year reunion because when I was in high school, we won district in football for the first time in 19 years. That was back when one team got to go to the playoffs from every district, not every team, all right, or not, t- okay? So this was the last time that one team got to go, and and it was the first time in history, and we beat a team that had never lost in our district. Four years, they'd never lost a game. We beat them seven to nothing, and we were rocking. Woo! We were not the most talented team. In fact, the, the class behind us was considered much more talented than we were. They had several guys go to Division I schools to play football the year after I graduated, but they didn't win district. We were a better team. 
We were smart and we were a team. We played together as a team. So I can tell you what's going to happen at my 30-year reunion. Somewhere in the, what happened at the 10-year was at the dance. We were all dancing, you know, there's, there's different tables. There's a drunk table and there's a Christian table and there's all these different tables. But somewhere during the night, about 10 guys got together and started talking about when we won district. And so I already know this is going to happen. There's going to be about 10, 15, 20 bald, fat guys thinking back 30 years before. Remember when we played Lubbock Estacada? And we're just going to have this talk. and We're going to laugh and we're going to talk about different plays that people made. I can still remember them. Because we were part of a team and that journey drew our hearts together. So I haven't seen some of these guys since my 10-year reunion. Some of them I haven't seen since I graduated. The fact that we were on a journey together and we were successful on that team is what drew us together. The church is supposed to be a team on a journey and our hearts are supposed to be consistently drawing closer together. Now, I bet, I bet a lot of you haven't been on a team that was really meaningful. Some of you have. But that's the journey that we want to start And we want all of y'all to be a part of it. If you have a group of friends and you want them to become a team, then you need to do four things. If you have an office that you want to bring together as a team, if you're a small group, you want it to be a team. If you're married and you want your marriage to function as as a team, your family to function as a team, there are four things you need to do. And the incredible thing about Scripture is you can apply these principles to any area that you want to make a team. And, and you know that I don't very often do acrostics because I don't like them. But team is a short one. The worst talk ever. Which was it, Janie? We went to a Thanksgiving meal 19 years ago. And the dude stood up and did Thanksgiving as an acrostic. We were praying to God that he would stop at thanks. And he went on to giving. So I don't do that, but team is four, four points. So we're going to look at team today. So the first thing, what it takes to build a team, first is trust. If you will never trust anyone, you will not grow spiritually. And if you don't trust other people, it's very possible that you could hinder their spiritual growth. Proverbs 20, verse 6. This, again, this is amazing because this was written thousands of years ago, and it's just as true today. Many people claim to be loyal, but it's hard to find a trustworthy person. (laughs) It's what I love about Scripture. It's just as relevant today as it was when it was written. Yesterday, Donald Melendez got married, and, and one of the things that Nathan said in his best man speech was that man, his dad had told him, win, lose, or draw, I got your back. Doesn't matter, I got your back. And so that's what Nathan was saying to his buddy. He is like family with Donald. And that's what the church is supposed to be. Win, lose, or draw. We're supposed to have each other's back. A lot of people claim to be loyal, but it is very difficult to find a trustworthy person. So the question becomes, how do you know who to trust, whom to trust? Or a more important question is, how do you become a trustworthy person? A couple of things. First thing is you've got to be consistent. If you're consistent in little bitty things... Is it logical to think that you'll be consistent in bigger things? According to Jesus, that's perfectly logical. Look at Luke 16.10. Unless you are honest in small matters, you won't be in larger ones. If you cheat even a little, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. Today, everybody wants to serve God in big ways. I remember when, when I was at youth camp and I gave my heart to Christ and I said, I said, I will follow you anywhere. I did one of those deals. 
And I thought that God would immediately put me in some big ministry. He put me in a, in a church that had about 20 people in it. And then they said, hey, you want to be a youth minister? I was 19. And I'm like, okay. There were no teenagers coming. That's a big, powerful ministry. And they said, do you want to do it? I said, sure. And so we got a few kids and, and, you know, I started in small things. If you can't be faithful in small things, there is no reason to believe you'll be faithful in large things. Character is built in those little things of life. God says you show your character in the little things. He's watching. Other people are watching. When you show your character in little things, then God says, I can trust you with bigger things. How you handle little commitments, little inconveniences tells me, and more importantly, tells God a lot about whether you have character or not. So, if you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're going to serve in some area at New Life, and by the way, that's where we're going today, if you had not figured that out. We're going to have people sign up to serve. But don't sign up to serve if you don't mean it. If you say you're going to serve in an area, then serve in that area. If you say you're going to be here at a certain time, be here at that time. I know a lot of people say, well, you're the pastor and you get paid to do it. If the only reason I do the things that God has called me to do is because I get paid, then my faith is worthless. I'd like to believe that if I weren't being paid, I would still be at church on time. I would still serve in a ministry. We did when we, before, when we were in between churches. We were at church every Sunday. We plugged in where we could. I would like to think that, be, that my relationship with Christ is more than a paycheck. So if you say you're going to do something, then we expect you to do it. And, and see, I'm not talking, though, <laughs> I'm not talking about those times that, you know, you're coming to church and you have a flat tire or you have a wreck or something major happens and it's out of character. Everyone knows whether what you do is in character or out of character. And that's the problem. If you're always late to a commitment, that's a character problem. If you say you're going to do something and don't do it and everybody and no one expects you to even do it in the first place, that's a character issue. I want to be consistent. I want you to be consistent because we're going to grow our church that way. A lot of people decide whether to trust you based on whether you're consistent or inconsistent with what you say and do. So that's the first one. Be consistent. Second is be confidential. If you're going um, to serve and become friends and be part of a team at New Life, you have to keep secrets. Now, let me say this very clearly so no one misunderstands. There's an exception to this rule. Because our rule is what happens in small group stays in small group. There are two exceptions. If what you say, you are planning to hurt yourself, we have to report that to the the proper people. If what you are saying in small group, you're going to hurt someone else, we have to report that. Alright? So if you're not going to hurt yourself and you're not going to hurt others, then you've got to learn to keep secrets. Someone trusts you enough to open up and share a deep, dark secret with you. You better keep that in your small group because they are they are trusting you and they're about to have some emotional and some spiritual healing that you can totally short circuit if you violate that confidence. Look at Proverbs eleven thirteen. A gossip tells everything, but a true friend will keep a secret. Gossip is sharing information when you're not a part of the problem, nor are you a part of the solution. That's what gossip is. So if you don't have any part in the problem or the solution, shut up. One of the things I hate about Facebook is that gossip spreads much more rapidly than it used to with all of our social media. And and let me just tell you, 
if, if you're gossiping on Facebook, I'll defriend you. Because here's what I've learned. If you will gossip to me about someone, you will gossip about me to someone else. I don't need that. I'm too old for that. We'll go back next year for my 30 and there'll be a lot of drama and I'll just walk away from drama. I'll talk about football. But drama, I don't need that. I'm not in high school anymore. I'm not in junior high. And our churches, people can find that trash anywhere. Why would they come to church to find gossip and backstabbing? That doesn't make sense to me. Here's how you stop someone from gossiping. Say something nice about the person they're gossiping about. Say, I don't know, I kind of like them. In fact, I'm going to have lunch with them tomorrow. Or, you really want to be bold? You want to cut gossip off. You say, wow, God hates gossip. And I got to tell you, I'm required by God to go tell the person what you just said. They'll run away from you. In a heartbeat. I mean, here's just a practical point. Guys, if, if you're with a group of people who are saying th- bad things about their wife, start saying good things about your wife and watch how things change. Because you're no longer part of the group. They'll shun you. That's okay, I'd rather be shunned. I don't want to be a part of a group like that. And you don't either. There's another thing you need to do. If you're going to build trust, and that's be close. You have to spend time with people to earn their trust. You do not trust people you do not know. Proverbs 17, 17. Friends love through all kinds of weather. This is the message translation. I just love the way it says it. Friends love through all kinds of weather, and families stick together in all kinds of trouble. You find out who your true friends are when you go through crisis. The people who don't run away from you, the people who are drawn near to you, They're the ones that are your true friends. And the key word is stick together. And, you know, I was just thinking about tape. Tape is sticky. But you don't hold tape over here if the problem is over there. you got to get it in close proximity in order for it to stick. And that's what the Bible is saying is you stick close. Friends stick close during difficult times. And see, here's the deal. It takes time to earn trust. It takes much more time to re-earn it when it's been broken. You can lose trust in an instant. But it takes weeks or months or sometimes years to gain trust, to be a trustworthy person. Some of you have never stuck with small group long enough to develop trust. And if you're making a commitment to it, get involved and stick with it. If you can't stand your group, we say this all the time, if you can't stand your small group, try another one. If you can't stand that group, try another one. If you try all of the groups and you can't stand any of them, maybe you're the problem. There you go. You need to go to celebrate recovery. But but if you thought about that, if you can't get along with anybody, maybe it's you. And maybe it's not everybody else. So, if you're going to be if we're going to have a team, trust is essential. Second thing, empathy. Empathy. 1 Peter 3:8 says, "Sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude." You cannot have a family atmosphere without sympathy. Sympathy is recognizing that someone else is hurt. But we're going to go deeper than that. A step deeper is empathy where you hurt with the person. That's much, much bigger. Well, well, how do you empathize with a couple of things? First is to slow down. Speed destroys empathy. We went on vacation a couple of weeks ago and we flew. And I, I said 20-something thousand feet, but then I got to think about it. I think we were at 39,000 feet. 
as we fly over the Mississippi River. We fly over part of the Gulf of Mexico, and then we fly over some of the beautiful Florida beaches. And, and so at, at over uh, six to seven miles above the earth, traveling at several hundred miles an hour, how many details do you think I could give you of the Mississippi River and the beaches and the Gulf of Mexico? Very few. Now, if I were to come down those six or seven miles and get in a car and drive that route, would I notice a few more details? Yes, I'd still be moving fast. Within the speed limit, mostly. I'd still be moving fast, but I could see more things. Now, if I were to walk the route, would I see even more details? And, and the, the, if I really wanted to have details of the Mississippi River, of the beaches, I'd go and sit down and hang out and just, just watch the river go by. And I would begin to notice things. Small groups are where you sit down and begin to notice other people. It's where you begin to see them and get to know them. Details, we miss details because we're moving too fast. And quite honestly, most of you are skimming relationally. You know those birds, I, I go fishing and I go hunting. And, and you know those birds that are flying and they dip down and they just barely take a little bit, beak full of water, and then they're flying on. Because they're too busy to get down on the ground and, and slurp. So they take just a little bit. That's what most of you are doing relationally. And the people in your life are hurting because you're not noticing the details. They need you to slow down. If you're having issues with, with children, I mean, Janie and I used to talk about this as our kids were, were growing up. We would say, man, I think that, that I would say, or she would sometimes, she'd say, I think you need to spend some time with Caleb or Rachel, whichever one. It's obvious that you hadn't spent a little time. Maybe why don't you take them on a date? Why don't you go hang out with them? Because you can't notice people at Mach 1. You can't notice the details. And skimming will kill your relationship. So you got to slow down. If you don't have time for small group, you're too busy. That's one of the ways that I'm convinced that God helps you grow spiritually. If it's one of the most important ways to grow spiritually and you don't have time for it, be logical and put it together. So you slow down. The second thing you need to do is ask questions. When you ask someone else a question, it takes the focus off of you. Proverbs 25 says, 20 verse 5 says, The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. Here's how you draw out. A wise person draws out what's inside another person's heart and soul. First, you ask, how are you? We do this every Sunday. I hear it all the time out here in the living room. How are you doing? I'm fine. Liars. So what you do is you say, no, 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 I want to know how are you really. You ask it a second time. And watch what people do. Because if you say, how are you? Most people think you don't want the extended version. You don't, you don't care enough. And, and I'm not saying you don't care, but you don't have time. And so most of the time, we don't want the full version. In fact, if someone stops and starts telling this, you're going, uh, I gotta go. Right? So... You slow down and you say, no, I, I'm, I'm asking how are you really? And watch what their countenance will do. They'll respond to that because all of a sudden you've gone to a deeper level. You really want to know? You ask me that and I'm, I might say, how much time do you have? You, you really want to know? And then as they begin to share, you listen. You don't try to fix them. It's one of the principles of Celebrate Recovery. You don't try to fix other people. You let them talk and you listen. And then you say, well, well tell me more about that. 
When you do that to a person, they leave the encounter with you going, they're pretty cool. They care about me. They're not like everyone else in my life. And you begin to draw closer. So you ask those questions and you slow down. There's a third thing. There's trust, there's empathy, and then there is you accommodate. When you come to our house, you're going to get the best of whatever we have. Janie believes that the guests get the best. That ought to be the motto of churches. Guests should get the best at any church you go to. Right? Isn't that what happens? See, here's what I believe. I believe that church members, regular attenders, ought to park as far away from the building as they can. You'll never find my car up here close. Because I would rather you park up there. I think the elderly and single moms ought to be lined up right out here by the fence. I think that ought to be reserved for them every week. I think we ought to have several parking spaces for people who always run late. So that they can come in. Because never, never should someone have to walk in here and walk to the front to find a place to sit. You know how bad that makes most people feel? Most people don't have my personality. I'll go busting up in there. I don't care. But most people aren't like that. So we ought to park as far away as we can. And then we ought to sit at the front. I would tell my youth groups through the years, if you're sitting at the back, there's an issue with your attitude. We need to be sitting at the front. We need to be hungry for what Jesus is going to offer us that day. So in our church, my goal is for us to sit at the front, park at the back. How hard is that? Because when a guest comes and they see the best parking places, there have been people who've driven through here in the past and not found a parking place and they go out and they, and I wonder, do they ever come back? So an unselfish church attracts more people. You tell them that they're important. In my, in, in, in my life, the heroes that I have in this church, They're the people that I see walking from the farthest corners because I say they got it. They understand. They're the people that get here early if they're serving in some ministry just to make sure everything's right. And I say they get it. They're the people that sit at the front and not at the back. They're the people who serve. My heroes are the ones who give up their Sundays in here week after week so that they can be back there and take care of your snotty-nosed children. I like your kids too. But sometimes they are snotty-nosed. Then there's that other stuff. But see, guys, here's the cool thing. We don't even let you change diapers in our children's ministry. That's awesome. You have to be female. So how hard is it to go back there? I mean, you just take it to the nearest female. This is for you. (laughs) I've wanted to do that all my life. When Caleb was little or one of our kids were little. Where's mama? <laughs> and in our, in our house, you know, the kitchen is open. So, and I, I'd try to be real quiet. And Caleb would go walking in there, mama. And she'd go, did your daddy just send you in here? Uh-huh. Sorry, sucker. Sold me out. But, I mean, we try to make it easy for you men. We need men. We're desperate for men to work back in the children's area. In, in every church I've ever been in. There are more women who serve than men. Why is that? Besides the fact that men suck, why is that? Because we don't get it. 
kids see a man in a classroom, they react to a man differently, don't they, ladies? I mean, we can treat them all the same, all that stuff, and you get a man in there, and a man, because I can, I've, I've worked with Janie many times. We used to, after I, I served in Celebrate Recovery for a year, Janie and I watched kids for another eight months just to make sure the ministry would, would uh, be sustained. And Janie would say to a kid, stop. And of course, she says, stop, you know. And the kid wouldn't stop, and I don't have any patience with that. I don't care if they are your kids. If somebody says stop, I expect them to stop. And so I'd say, stop. If they didn't, I'd get in their little faces, and I'd say, you will stop. And their eyes get big, and they stop. (laughs) I know Richard Lowe has done that back here on on Sunday nights. Just the fact that he's back there. I mean, he's bigger than, than the kids, and you say stop. But I also know he has loved on those kids, and they have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him. Men, we're going to give you an opportunity to sign up to serve later, and we want, we want husbands and wives to serve together. Mainly because we know she'll kick your rear and get you back there to serve, but also so that it can be easier for you, so you don't have to say, I don't know anybody back there. Really? I mean, that's your excuse? I don't know any children. Just go stand in the corner. And if a kid acts up, you just step out, be, you know, be like a bouncer. You can do that. We, we can make it easy. See, we got all kinds of stuff that, that needs to be done. If you're interested, we, we have every Sunday, we, you know, we put all of this stuff up here. Well, that's got to have somebody running the computer. And this morning, uh, Miriam Davis is back there. Miriam has learned on Wednesday nights and she does a lot with the teenagers and Jared Beckham does it on Wednesday nights too and Hannah's learning how to do that. Kids are learning how to do this stuff. It's not that hard. It just takes a little bit of commitment. Mike is on the soundboard. Mike Ort, if you're interested in running sound or, or working on the computer, go see Mike after church today. We need people to help in the kitchen. Some of you are cookers and we would be so grateful if you would help. Go back there and talk to those ladies and figure out when you can sign up to help. There's going to be tables out there. We need people. I've asked several individuals in this church throughout our history to be out in the parking lot every Sunday and to greet people. Because when I go to a church and they have people in the parking lot, I go, wow, this church gets it. We uh, went to a conference years ago, years ago, back in the, in the 70s, in the 90s, around 97. And, and we were walking up to this large church, Rick Warren's church. We were walking up there just for the conference, and they had greeters out front. And they would shake every hand. And I think Alex actually rent, went around him one time to get just to check him out. The dude spotted him 25 yards down, chased him down, and shook his hand. I'm like, that's a good greeter. Right? So wouldn't it make you feel better if when you got out of your car, someone was out there? To say, hey, do you need some help? Especially if you've got little ones running everywhere. If we had somebody shaking your hand. Somebody that smiles. I never understood why Baptist churches put the, the worst people at the doors. You say hi to them. And they're like, what? You know, that's stupid. I've asked a lot of people, how hard is it to get here early? And just to, just to shake hands with folks. Just to offer them help. How hard is it to, to go out there and put wristbands on, security wristbands on kids? How hard is it to have someone stand back there and, and make sure that nobody goes back and, if they don't have a wristband on? We've got to be overly protective of our children's area in this day and age. How hard are those things? 
They're not hard. It just requires somebody to step up and say, I'll do it. I'll be committed. And I'll come over and over and over again. And I just got to be honest with you. Um, this next year will be 10 years. We're going to have a big party next June when, we, when New Life turns 10 years. But I got to tell you, I was trying to figure this out, and I, I don't know because I haven't written it down in a journal. I should have. At least once a year, I'm ready to quit. Because there is no... My, a friend of mine is a pastor, and, and we talk about this all the time. There's no other job on the planet that's like pastoring. Because this is intensely personal to me. When you hurt, I hurt. When you go to jail, I hurt. And I visited many of you in jail. When, when your marriage starts to break apart, it kills me. When, when people get upset with me, it hurts. When people leave the church, it hurts. And the enemy will attack me at times. And I have at least once a year, I have this pit of despair where I'm like, I'm done, Lord. You, you can have it. And then I'll, I'll, I'll have a couple of sleepless nights. And, and the Lord will go, exactly why are you whining? Because this is hard. And he said, didn't I tell you it'd be hard? Yes, Lord. Didn't I tell you people would hurt you? Yes, Lord. So who are you doing it for? Well, you. And he says, get off your butt and do something. He doesn't say it in those terms. (laughs) But he says to me, if you're serving me, Get up. Okay. And, and it's usually right after those times that something amazing happens in our church. And I look back and I go, Oh God, I almost fell for it. The enemy was hitting me when I was down because he knew we had something greater in the future. How stupid am I? And the Lord picks me up and then we move on to something new. You're always going to feel like quitting. You're always going to have people who question you. You're always going to have people who stab you in the back. But our audience is God. And so when, it, when it's Him, I... Because honestly, if it's just you, I probably would have quit. I mean, honestly. I love you, but... You know what I'm saying? We accommodate. Let me run through this because I talked way too long. We accommodate each other's needs. Needs take time and energy. And a lot of people will say, I know you're going to say this. I don't have time to meet my own needs. And I'm going to say, you're exactly right. And God never designed you to meet your own needs. It's when we serve and work together, we meet each other's needs. It's a design of the universe. We accommodate each other's faults. I have a book in my library called Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. Have you noticed that? From a distance, everybody looks normal, look like they've got it all together. Then you get to know them. You go, man, they're weird. And then you realize we're all weird. And it doesn't take long to sit in a small group till you go, we are all weird. What's normal? I don't even know what normal is anymore. I want to be the abnormal church. In fact, I have a shirt. Um, Craig Groeschel's written a book called Weird. And on the back it says, because normal isn't working. I wear that shirt. I get comments everywhere. People see the back of them. They go, yes, I like that shirt. And I say, well, come to our church. You can't find a weirder church than our church. You can impress people from a distance, but you can only influence them up close. Ephesians 4, 2 says, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. The moment you figure out that somebody in your group has faults, that your group isn't perfect, you got, you got three choices. 
You can pretend that everybody's great. You can pretend and you can fake it. And there's a lot of stress in that. You can run away from it and you can say, I'm going to, I'm going to wait until I find the perfect group and then I'm going to join that. And then it won't be perfect anymore because you joined it. Because you don't ever find a perfect group. You don't find a perfect church. Or you can accept the fact that we're all messed up and we can be messed up together. And when you accommodate someone else's faults, it doesn't make you weaker. It actually makes you stronger and you become more Christ-like. Now, the last thing of team is mission. This means you have a cause worth dying for. You, you, I heard some of the Ian Kinsler, some of the Rangers, they were talking about, you know, our first goal was get the playoffs, but we want to finish the deal. Because they got to the World Series last year and fell short and, and it just hurt. And they want to finish it off. And woo I hope they do. But what causes great teams is they have this focus, this mission, this purpose. Philippians 2.2 says... Be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, interest, uh, intent on one purpose. Go ahead and put that verse up there. I think I've got it there. Be of the same mind, maintaining. Notice it takes effort. You don't become good friends without effort. You don't have a good marriage without effort. You don't have a good small group without effort. Sometimes, though, we look around and we say, oh, there's too many problems in the church. And, and sometimes we say there's too many problems in the world and we say, God, why don't you do something? And God says, why don't you do something? You're the one on the planet. You're the one I placed at this time and place for a purpose. Why don't you do something? And today you can. So when we finish here in a minute, the doors are going to be open and you can go sign up to serve in some area. Make a difference. If you're an owner of the church, you need to be serving in the church. Owners give, they serve, they pray, they sacrifice for the church, for the kingdom of God. There's this unbelievable power in team. You, you take greater risks as a team. You accomplish more financially as a team. I, t- I told you last week we paid over $100,000 off of our debt. There's no way any one person could have done that in the last year. But as a team, when everybody makes their commitment to, to bagel building a great life... I love it. Oh, yeah, y'all got confused. When everybody does that, we have between five dollars and $6,000 a month that goes just to reducing our debt. That's more than I make in a month. I couldn't do that by myself. But together, we can, we can achieve great things.